Um, what page are we on? On to 73. Oh, nice. Oh, yes. no, we I have my far own copy through. now, thanks to Rometeer Tupperboo, so nice. kindly donated it to me. Yes. That was nice. Thank you. <laughs> Very much. Um, you said 73? Yeah. Uh, Pondu, Deadly Curses, Heavenly Boon. There we go. Okay, cool. So, <clears throat> how do you want to... Well, first of all, because it's a new podcast, uh, we've already been oh. reading, and we do this every time because we've already yep. been reading. We feel like we shouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> but um, for everybody watching, thank you for tuning in. We're reading from Quest for Justice, which is select tales from the Mahabharat with some, like, you know, sort of... He, he kind of, like... M modernize it in the sense of like explaining it in terms that you can mm. understand easily even though it's from a different time period uh so we've been reading this and we're already i don't know several chapters and they're not numbered so yeah but it's been going nicely also, very exciting this is not scotch this is coffee <laughs> it's cold brew coffee yeah <laughs> we're not, no, no scotch drinking is happening I here i thought that while we were sitting here earlier, we were sitting there drinking them i'm like shit people are gonna think we're just chugging <laughs> scotch in the morning <laughs> oh goodness no that's a good point. Some spiritual example, you guys. Are yeah, <laughs> drinking scotch and reading the <laughs> Prabhupada. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> missing the point. <laughs> um, but so hopefully everybody's weeks are going well, etc. And if you guys have anything you'd like us to read or any conversation, please feel free to comment and message, share with a friend, like, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. Follow the page on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube. Um, we're trying to be more active with you guys, so the more we hear from you or notice the things that you're liking versus the ones you don't seem to like as much, you're not interacting with, we'll try to start tailoring it towards where we're doing a little bit more of that. We've started doing the picture posts. Hans is usually the one doing the other thing. I've done maybe two oh, okay. in the entire history of the picture <laughs> posts. So Hans has got trying that frame under his belt. Hard, man. Um, yeah. but, but, but it seems to be going well. A lot of people yeah. seem like they're enjoying those. Um, mm -hmm. My mom actually said, I forgot to tell you, so I'll say it on the air, I guess, <laughs> on the air. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my mom said that she really appreciates our reading. She hasn't been watching the YouTube videos. I don't think she, somehow she, like, didn't put it together. We were doing those also. Yeah. You know, we've been doing them longer. It seems that yeah, so we need to make sure we put that out there. Are... We are reading these, which this is going to be long for. Maybe I'll put a little clip of this from my Instagram, yeah. on Instagram. This is like the first little intro here. We are reading long form on YouTube and Spotify and yeah. Apple Podcasts and wherever the heck you get your podcast, pretty much it will be there. Mm -hmm. um, it's because we're using Anchor. So a little advertisement for Anchor. It's awesome. If you're trying to do a podcast, you should use that app. Yeah. It uh, makes everything very easy. You don't have to upload it a million places. You upload it to one place. <clears throat> it puts it all Splinter. everywhere. So um, that being said, <clears throat> if I can not choke, I was trying to eat peanuts real fast and <laughs> a little piece of peanut got stuck there. Okay. So... Uh, my mom was saying that she really appreciates our reading mm. uh, because she feels that, well, she was saying that it's like the only sudden that she's doing right now because she's gotten off track. So mm -hmm. for her hearing us you know, do that has been really nice for her, which I told her, you know, it's definitely the main thing encouraging myself at least to do the mm -hmm. sudden as well as far as listening to classes every morning. Some mornings are longer than others. Some mornings I spend like two hours listening to classes. Other mm -hmm. mornings it's like 15, 20 minutes depending on what's going on, how much rushed I am. But I always listen to some class first thing to just try to like start my day that way. Yeah, I think um, that's really important because it's easy, like, I mean, that's that's part of, like, in the Bhagavad Gita, <clears throat> you know, the chapter that, I, that we've been reading, chapter four, Krishna's talking about sacrifice and, like, it kind of can sound a little vague, like, offering, you know, offering this into that, but this is, this is one of the sacrifices that you do. When you're time. sacrificing your time 
instead of pursuing sense gratification like watching Netflix or doing whatever, scrolling through Reddit, if you instead, you're showing Krishna through your actions, because, you know, actions are, you know, a lot more substantive than words. You can say whatever you want. Oh, Krishna, I want to be your servant or I want to become more spiritual, but you can say that all day long until you start doing it. Even if it is just a few minutes, the fact that you're you're prioritizing that first over anything else, you're creating or you're striving to create a habit that, excuse me, when your life starts turning upside down, if that habit is what you can kind of fall back on as a crutch, that's what we want is our crutch to, oh my God, my life's falling apart all around yeah. me, but I still have my sadhana. Yeah. I still have my chanting. I still have, that's how we take shelter of Krishna. Reading, you know, associating, chanting, hearing kirtan, whatever yeah. it is, eating prasadam. Those are all ways, you know, that we're using our actions to show Krishna that, no, we really do want to become closer with you. Yeah. And it's <laughs> nice to hear from your mom. I know my mom, like, she's all stressed out. She works as a teacher, and it's like... Yeah. Um, but I'm really happy that we can do this, you know... And, you know, considering that your mom and my mom and your grandma and grandpa, you know, Yadu and Taruni, like... Our whole growing up, they were there constantly offering us Krishna consciousness. So if I just find it like really, I feel very blessed that we can at least offer, yeah, you know, some because it's it's powerful to hear. Like when I hear from my kids, right? They tell me something Krishna conscious that I'm like, oh wow, like yeah, that's really cool. It's a way that we can return the favor because we can never repay our parents for bringing us up. Yeah. The way they brought us up. At least I don't think I can. Not ever. I mean, the only way you can repay it really is to pass it forward. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Five yeah. percent. <clears throat> so it's nice to hear that a couple Thanks, people are enjoying uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Mama. Another one, mommy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for for listening, and thank you to everybody else who's listening. Um, we do have a few listeners now. You know, small yeah. handful of people that handful. actually listen at least to handful some of, of what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, handful of critics. Um, so, hopefully, we can get some more. But yeah, tell a friend if you haven't already. If you're finding it at all useful, or if there's something that you don't, if there's something that's keeping you from sharing it or listening to it as much as you would otherwise maybe feel mm-hmm. inclined to listen to it, then if you let us know what that is. I mean, it may just be that our voice drives you nuts, in which case we can't change that. But if it's something that we can adjust, then we can try to, you know, adjust it. Yeah. (laughs) But um, you know, if it's something that we can fix or uh, fine tune, then we're more than happy to do that. We're really Mm -hmm. just doing this as to read together and then to try to share it with people. So if the sharing with people can be better in some way from your perspective, um, you know, we may get multiple people telling us complete opposite things. We may have to choose which one we do. Um, but if you, you like always it, feel free to hell for eternity, yeah, just go ahead and <laughs> tell us what it is that you feel. And if we can do it, we will. And if just we can't, or if we get more people asking for the opposite thing, then we may go, we're probably going to go with the popular opinion on that provided mm-hmm. it makes sense. But, um, yeah. So thank you guys very much with that. We're going to get into quest for justice. Yeah. Select tales with modern illuminations from the Mahabharat by, uh, Peter Resnick. HDG Swami. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> um, do you want to read the full chapter? 
Or yeah, do you want to read a couple to pages? Okay, is it a long that one? Mistake again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, do you want to just start us off, maybe, and get us to yeah, maybe like uh, seventy-seven or seventy-eight, something like that? Yeah, I think that looks about. Good, uh... Actually, how long is this? It's eighty-eight. We're starting on seventy-three. So maybe you want to you want to read until uh, I'll read until like 80, the middle of maybe yeah, 80. 80. I'm just trying to somewhere look. on eighty, eighty-one, somewhere in that range, yeah. and then I'll take over. A paragraph actually ends at the end of 80, so if you want to while, just read to there. So I'll end where it says while all of this is taking place yeah. in Yadu territory. Yeah, Okay. and then at the end of page 80, and I'll all take right. over on 81. Dun-dun-dun-dun. <clears throat> Pandu, deadly curses, heavenly boons. Okay, so the three Kuru brothers were Dhritarashtra, the oldest blind king, or brother, Pandu, and Vidura. Vidura was the son of the maidservant, who, so he was not eligible. Okay. Right. And of these, Pandu became the Kuru king, married Kunti, and returned to Hastinapura. Not long thereafter, Bhishma told Pandu to take a second wife in order to secure the future of the throne. Excuse me. It was around this time that word came, came from the Madra kingdom that a beautiful, highly accomplished princess named Madri would soon be selecting her husband. This time it was decided that none other than Bhishma would travel to Madra on Pandu's behalf to obtain and return with the princess. You could call this an odd choice after Bhishma's great success with Ambaswamvara, you know, the one that will eventually cost Bhishma his life. In any case, this time he tried a different approach, doing it the old-fashioned way, with money. <laughs> you probably know that not only in India, but in many places throughout the world, including Europe, the dowry was a long-standing custom where the bride's family would give some substantial gift to the family of the groom. Well, when Bhishma arrived in Madra, <coughs> he found that Madri was being protected not by her father, but rather by her brother, Shalya, who will feature later in the story. Apparently, Madri's father was no longer there, so Shalya himself spoke on Madri's behalf. In our family, the young king said, we're quite proud, and thus we don't give dowries, we receive them. The statement in itself is interesting because it indicates a variety of customs in ancient Vedic culture. There wasn't just one way of doing things. Wow, they actually, like, used their heads. Yeah. To analyze situations for time, place, and circumstance. Yeah. Who would have thought <laughs> that such an ancient culture was that advanced? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Bhishma evidently had come prepared. He gave Shalya the dowry, brought Madri home, and now Pandu had two great queens. After only a brief honeymoon, Pandu set about taking care of dynastic business. Here we can note that Pandu, perhaps consciously, avoiding go avoided going down the disastrous path of his dharmic father, Vichitravirya, who, if you remember, became endlessly caught up in the indulgences of his honeymoon until illness and death overtook him. <laughs> She's like, not making that mistake, Dad. <laughs> I mentioned earlier in the interregnum, the period in which there was no king, all kinds of bad things were happening in the world. Neighbors violating borders and stealing Kuru lands, certain world leaders bullying other kingdoms, oppressing innocent people, and so on. Uh, I think in the last chapter he talked about Jarasanda, Jarasanda. Mm -hmm. He was like the, the principal. Uh, yeah, he was making some bad, power moves. Bad dude, yeah. yeah. 
Um, Pandu, let's not forget, was this extraordinarily powerful king. His father was Vyasadeva, the great sage in Avatara, and his mother was Ambalika, a princess. So after a brief getting-to-know-you period with his wives, Pandu immediately went forth to secure Kuru lands, eliminate the oppressors of innocent people, and set the world aright. So he's like, all right, nice, uh, nice being married to you. Now to go to war. <laughs> okay. The text describes his triumphant return to Hastinapur, bearing an amazing amount of tribute or treasure in a long train of wagons. People would pay tribute to the Kuru king, and this wealth would be used to maintain a type of central government, not in the sense of managing other kingdoms, but rather in the sense of leading and sustaining an alliance that protected all. So basically, the United Nations. Yeah. Type of, okay. <clears throat> but Pandu also received many personal gifts, and being of a detached and generous nature, he gave these valuable items to his wives, his brothers, and everyone else, keeping very little for himself. He especially lavished gifts upon his, old, his blind older brother, Dhritarashtra. I mention this because, as I said, Dhritarashtra clearly had issues. He was the firstborn, the legitimate heir, yet he had a disability that prevented him from ruling as a warrior king. Even though Pandu was an ideal younger brother, something that Dhritarashtra genuinely appreciated, he could never forget that his blindness had deprived him of the throne. In any case, Pandu eventually returned the realm to order, and having done so, he wanted to take his wives and go off to the forest. This is something of a common theme in ancient literature. At a certain point, great kings would leave behind the opulences and headaches of their somewhat overdone lives in the palace, and go to the woods, to nature, where they would enjoy camping at the side of a river, and so on. For example, there's a point in the Ramayana where Rama had been banished to the forest, and all of the citizens of Ayodhya were weeping and lamenting. Poor boy, you had such a great life in the palace, with soft pillows, sheets as white as foam, and whatnot. But Rama responded, actually, I like it out here. It's more natural. This was the case with Pandu as well. He and his wives retreated for a bit of ecotourism, living in the forest and enjoying the beauty of nature. And while there, Pandu would hunt, which is something of an issue in its own right. In ancient Vedic culture, kings were permitted to hunt because, again, it was their job to personally protect the kingdom. To do this, to do so, they obviously had to become proficient with their weapons, and this required practice. But although it wasn't officially illegal for kings to hunt, there are many stories in Sanskrit literature about kings who ruined their lives by hunting. Yeah, that's true. It's similar to the situation with polygamy, which I had mentioned earlier. Although this practice wasn't forbidden, there are many stories in the text about polygamy causing a great deal of havoc. So, what does this mean? Vedic civilization was an extremely old civilization with a tremendous amount of real-world experience. Over time, a system developed in which certain undesirable activities weren't necessarily criminalized or made illegal, but were rather culturally discouraged. These were activities that people would do regardless. To criminalize them would engender a disrespect for the rule of law since great kings themselves were doing them. 
and so instead of being banned, such activities were culturally discouraged. For instance, by emphasizing historical examples in which those activities led to disaster. Okay. There's actually a long list of great kings, some of the greatest in fact, who basically destroyed their lives through hunting accidents. One of them, of course, is Dazarath, uh, the father of Ram, who destroyed his life and ultimately died because of a hunting accident. And then there's a little note about that story. While hunting, then Crown Prince Dazarath killed a young boy in the forest, mistaking him for a deer. The boy's blind parents transferred their grief of separation to the future king via a curse, planting the seed for Prince Ram's eventual exile. Yeah, that story was really sad. The boy goes down to the river to fill up a pot of water for his blind mother and father. And Dazarath, who was like a really great archer, it was dark. <clears throat> and he heard the glug, 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 and he thought it was an animal drinking, so he shot in the dark, killed the boy. And the boy is like, oh, my mom and dad, like, who's going to take care of them? And he's like, oh, crap. <laughs> and then he brought the pot back to the mom and dad silently, and they, like, start talking to him as if it was their son. And he's like, I'm sorry, actually, I killed your son, and I really really sorry <laughs> it's really really heartbreaking that story <clears throat> but then they basically curse him that you're gonna die of separation from your son mm -hmm. someday and which is what happened Ram goes and he's like oh anyway then there's the famous Parikshit the last great king of the Kuru dynasty the great grandson of the Pandavas who was personally saved by Krishna while still in his mother's womb his life was also upended while hunting. On that, becoming fatigued while hunting, King Parikshit came upon the hermitage of the sage Shamaka Rishi, who was deep in meditation and unresponsive to the king's request for water. The king, feeling insulted, garlanded the sage with a dead serpent and left. When the sage's Brahmana son returned home and saw this offense, he cursed the king to die within seven days. Yeah. It began one day when Pandu was hunting in the forest, tracking a stag and a doe. Coming within range of the deer, who happened to be mating at the time, the king aimed his arrows and shot. Then, to his horror, he heard the male deer shriek in what sounded like a human voice. Now, something like that can really ruin your day, and even your whole eco-tour. <laughs> <clears throat> As it turned out, this deer couple were not deer at all, but rather two very powerful yogis. It seemed they had done so many austerities for such a long time that they had become physically frigid and thus unable to produce a child. To overcome this passionless state, they used their yogic power to transform themselves into deer. Because deer have absolutely no problem with that kind of activity. They're quite procreative. <laughs> when Pandu came upon, shot, and mortally wounded them, the two yogis were literally in the act of begetting their child. Realizing what he had done to this young Brahmana couple, Pandu was mortified. He had dedicated his entire life to serving and protecting the Brahmana class, and now this? He simply explained that he was hunting deer <clears throat> and had no idea that the two were yogis. With his last few breaths, the dying Brahmana, a yogi named Kindama, turned towards Pandu and declared that because Pandu didn't know, he wouldn't have to suffer for the sin of killing a Brahmana. 
He would, however, have to suffer for the sin of killing creatures that were in the act of begetting a child. <coughs> Excuse me. Kendama avowed, The act of begetting is sacred in any form of life, and because you killed us in that act, you will have to pay in kind. Whenever in the future you attempt to beget a child, you also will die in the act. Man. This, of course, was a devastating, life-changing event for Pandu, to say the least. Once again, so he has two wives now and still hasn't had any kids yeah. with him, so now he's like... Now if money ever he has kids, he's going to die. <clears throat> yeah. Once again, we have a royal life that had been almost charmed. He was born a Kuru prince, became a Kuru king, married two beautiful princesses, and basically dominated the world. He was generous, he was kind, he followed Dharma, he served the Brahmanas. He had a completely fortunate life. Now, due to one fatal error, everything had changed. And Pandu had two terrible agonies to contend with. First, he had killed exalted yogis in the prime of their lives, which was extremely traumatic, particularly for him. And second, he was now basically unable to beget children, sons who could continue the noble Kuru line into the future. He had killed those he had sworn to protect, and gravely jeopardized his own life, all within the blink of an eye. Pandu was the Kuru king, yet Pandu would never be able to produce a Kuru heir. Faced with these drastic disappointments, Pandu decided to retreat high into the mountains rather than return home. His worldly life had failed despite all efforts, so now he would pursue the spiritual. With love, he requested Kunti and Madri to go back to the comforts of Hastinapur, as he intended to perform severe austerities high in the mountains. They, however, wouldn't hear of it. They had no interest in such things and only wanted to be with him. Kunti and Madri would follow Pandu and take up whatever austerities he performed. Pandu relented and let them stay with him. There is a key point that must be mentioned here because it's so pivotal to the Mahabharata's central story. In deciding to practice austerities in the mountains, Pandu never renounced the Kuru throne, nor the right of his eventual children to inherit that throne. He simply decided not to return to Hastinapur <coughs> and requested Dhritarashtra to take care of the kingdom until his return. When Dhritarashtra got word that Pandu would not be coming back, and that he was to rule in Pandu's stead, it was as if destiny had fulfilled his heart's long festering desire, the desire for the Kuru throne. Despite his younger brother's undoubted devotion, and despite his own genuine sympathy for Pandu, for Pandu's plight, Dhritarashtra must have had mixed feelings about the situation on two grounds. First of all, it appeared that Pandu wasn't coming back anytime soon. And thus, for all intents and purposes, Dhritarashtra would be calling the shots as the stand-in king. <clears throat> and secondly, if Pandu actually could never have children, there was a chance that his own firstborn would take the throne, giving him, by proxy, the power he had always sought. To say that Dhritarashtra was not free of personal ambition would be putting it mildly. This is something that comes out again and again as the narrative progresses. In any case, 
Pandu and his wives went up the mountain heights to a place called Shatashringa, which means hundred peaks. There they lived in the community of yogis and performed almost frightening austerities. Being an extraordinary Kshatriya king, Pandu had incredible strength, power, resilience, and determination, all of which he now focused on the path of realization, self-realization. I mean, that, like, you can see it as, oh, what a horrible thing, but it's also, again, a blessing in disguise because if it wasn't for that, he wouldn't have went went right. to go pursue self-realization right. in the in that kind of like that very rigorous yeah. way so you know <clears throat> meanwhile in the south there was another who was happy about pandu's retreat to the mountains uh -huh. someone we've already met who had no need to conceal his joy krishna's uncle kamsa who was actually the asura kalanami if you remember kalanami had taken birth on earth along with many cohorts to gain control of the planet the Asura's program, however, had been basically put on hold because of Pandu's near superhuman, supernatural strength. His current indefinite absence, of course, was the green light the Asuras had been waiting for, and they intended to take full advantage by more boldly pursuing their ends. This is confirmed by looking at the dates and the chronologies of the Mahabharata from a historiographical perspective, in this case, as it relates to Kamsa. Kamsa made his move at around the same time that Pandu was cursed and decided to remain in the wilderness. It was almost, it almost seems, <clears throat> excuse me, it almost seems as if Kamsa was waiting for an opening, since he was unable to act so long as Pandu ruled. Kamsa basically took the opportunity offered by Pandu's withdrawal to seize power, imprison his father, usurp the throne, and prosecute members of his own dynasty. <clears throat> These accounts are found in the Srimad Bhagavatam and alluded to in the Mahabharata. There's a lot of overlap. <clears throat> oh, I guess you. Oh. Yeah. While all this is <clears throat> taking place in Yadu territory, up in the mountains, Pandu achieves success in self-realization and also hears of Kamsa's aggressions from members of the Yadu dynasty. Learning of such goings-on in the world he is sworn to protect causes Pandu tremendous distress, and he becomes almost obsessed with the urgent need for sons to protect the earth, even if he dies in the process. Take Makes him babies even if it kills me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Woo. Better get your timing down. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Pandu decides to speak to Kunti about using the Abhad Dharma that Bhishma used in the case of Ambika, Ambika and Ambalika, when there's an emergency related to dynastic succession and the begetting of heirs, a pure-hearted Brahmana can beget a son in the womb of a Kshatriya, warrior lady. By Dharma, the child then becomes the legitimate heir to the throne. This is Pandu's solution, and he begs Kunti to accept it. At first, Kunti protests. She's repulsed by the idea of intimacy with anyone other than her husband, but Pandu continues to plead reminding Kunti of how much is at stake. Of course, we know that Kunti has a solution, wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma that no one knows about her. The powerful mantra given by Durvas, whereby she can summon any god to beget a child. And while she's unprepared to tell Pandu of her teenage trial run and the, that the child that was sent down the Nile, uh, about the child that was sent down the Nile, quotes, she does tell him about Durvas's boon. 
Pandu, of course, is astonished and overjoyed. He immediately agrees. However, since news of Pandu's curse has spread far and wide, the next question becomes, what will people think and what are we going to tell them? Here it's important to understand how seriously Vedic civilization's kings regard, regarded public opinion, as in the Ramayana's narrative of Ram. Um, there's a little side note here. It says, upon being freed from 10 months of captivity under the power of Ravan, Ram's wife Sita publicly exonerated herself of all suspected impropriety by surviving a trial by fire. Nevertheless, some foolish people still doubted her chastity, citing Vedic custom that a woman must never spend a night out of the house. Thus, for the sake of his kingdom, Lord Rama, being bound to redress even the slightest rumor of Adharma, or not Dharmic activity, was forced to banish the exalted wife from Ayodhya. Mm. That's another interesting story. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, after carefully considering this point, Pandu <coughs> and Kunti decide that she, she should, should summon the god of justice, Dharma. Because if the child is born of Dharma himself, no one can say that the act of begetting him is against religious principles, uh, or Adharma, clever. So Kunti sat in meditation, thinking of Dharma, who immediately appeared and, and begot a son who had become famous as Dharmaraj, the king of Dharma, for his unimpeachable virtue and justice. That, of course, was Yudhisthira. And Pandu was thrilled to have such a worthy heir. As you can imagine, when word of Yudhisthira's birth got back to Hastinapur, Dhritarashtra was not at all pleased. He was the eldest, he was extremely ambitious, and he was fully capable of ruling as king, except, of course, for one fateful flaw, the blindness that deprived, deprived him of it all. With Pandu's curse and a withdrawal to the mountains, he had assumed that his path was finally cleared and that his heirs would one day sit on the Kuru throne. At the time of Yudhishthir's birth, Dhritarashtra's wife, Gandhari, was also supposed to give birth, but the delivery had been delayed again and again. The child simply wasn't coming out. It was during this wait that Dhritarashtra received news about the birth of Pandu's son. For him, the worst possible news imaginable. It wasn't that Dhritarashtra had no love for his younger brother. To the contrary, he greatly loved and respected him. It was just that his ambition tended to get the better of him, and he knew what the birth of Pandu's son meant. By Dharma, he was the legitimate heir to the throne, being born prior to Dhritarashtra's son, who would turn out to be part of the Asura invasion. When Gandhari finally gave birth, they named the child Duryodhan, Duryodhana, which can mean someone who's difficult to fight, or simply a dirty fighter. And Duryodhana definitely lived up to his name. As was the custom following a royal birth, Duryodhana's parents asked the Jyotish Kavidas, expert astrologer, astrologers, Kavidas, expert astrologers, to draw up a chart and make a reading. What they found horrified them to the core, and they pleaded with the parents to neither raise the son as their own, nor make him heir to the Kuru throne. If you do, they warned, this child will destroy the entire Kuru dynasty. But... Out of deep parental attachment, Dhritarashtra was thinking, this is my boy, and he just couldn't do it. He just could not abandon his child. I guess he was one of those parents who, who hoped for the best. You know, I'll send him to the best schools. There's nothing that a lot of TLC can't fix. TLC meaning tender, loving care. In any case, this is what's going on. 
Yudhisthira is born first, and Pandu never renounced his claim to the throne. He just doesn't return to Hastinapur. Because the Mahabharata says again and again that for Yudhisthira, the kingdom was the Pitrapaitamaham Rajyam, the kingdom of his fathers and forefathers. After the birth of Yudhisthira, Pandu didn't want to stop there. He wanted more sons to ensure the dynasty and the safety of the people. Yeah, I mean, they keep having a lot of close calls where like you know, something know, happens like, and like one nope. dude says, like, let's get a bunch and let's yeah. keep this thing going. <laughs> he again spoke to Kunti and they decided Dharma is great, but sometimes you need real firepower. Virtue is great, but sometimes you need strength. So they summoned Vayu, the god of wind, the most powerful of all the gods, who came and begot Bhima the strongest of all the Pandavas. These children, by the way, are called Pandavas from the word Pandu. The term Pandava is a patronym, a name derived from the father's name. Of course, with the birth of his second son, Pandu felt like he and Kunti were really on a roll. Why stop there? Why not really go for the moon and summon Indra himself, the head of all the gods? Once again, Kunti chanted the mantra, this time while meditating on Indra. And as expected, Indra came and begot the most spectacular son of all. Arjuna, the intimate friend of Krishna, who heard Bhagavad Gita directly from Krishna's lips. In the excitement of all these births, Madri, Kunti's co-wife, had been more or less forgotten and was beginning to feel like a third wheel. With no mantra to offer, she felt as if she had become nothing, while Kunti had become everything. She went to Kunti, pleading, Use your power for me, let me also give the king sons. And Kunti, being extremely generous and kind, allowed Madri to use the mantra to summon a god. Madri sat down and chanted the mantra, calling the Ashvinis, the Asvinis, the twin gods. So in a sense, she double-dipped. The Ashvinis are physicians to the gods, renowned throughout the celestial world for their extraordinary beauty. They aren't exactly Upadevs, junior gods, devas, but junior gods, but they are in a somewhat subordinate position relative to certain gods. In any case, they came and begot the most handsome of the Pandavas, the twins Nakula and Sahadeva. Sahadeva. When the twins were born, however, Kunti became a bit peeved, feeling that Madri had taken advantage of the situation. I gave you this power and you called not one but two gods. If I allow again, who knows what you'll do. So please be satisfied with your two twin boys. Pandu, of course, wanted to just keep on going. <laughs> Why stop now? But Kunti basically put on the brakes. This is getting out of hand. I can't have a kid with every god in the universe. When you look closely at these texts, you realize that these were real people. For example, when Pandu was trying to get to induce Kunti to bear another child, he couldn't just order. He had to convince. So he tried to persuade by presenting different arguments, one of which included a famous verse. It is the dharma of a woman to follow her husband, whether he's right or wrong. <laughs> um, but what's interesting here is that right after Pandu quotes this verse, Kunti defeats him with her own argument, and he then he says, okay, dear, we'll do it your way. <laughs> yeah, Kunti was like super, like yeah. when it came to knowing, uh, Very she well was studied. outstanding, yeah. Despite the <clears throat> verse's implication that the wife is subordinate to the husband, in the real world, both husband and wife worked together as a team. Kunti basically told Pandu that if she continued to use Durvasa's mantra to summon gods and produce more and more sons, the world would begin to think of the Kuru queen as a loose woman, and rightly so. This is in quotes. You have five extraordinary sons, and you should be grateful and leave it at that. Pandu submitted, and that was the end. 
So the final count is five Pandava brothers, all one year apart, Yudhishthir, Bhima, Arjuna, and the twins Nakula and Sahadev, with Nakula being the older of the two. Meanwhile, back in Hastinapur, Dhritarashtra was also beginning sons, with Duryodhana his, first, Duryodhana, his firstborn, being roughly the same age as Bhima. One more highly significant point, at, the, at around the same time that Arjuna was born, the most important personality of the entire Mahabharata also took birth, Avatari Krishna. Recall that the Sanskrit word avatari means the source of all other avatars. And now I'll say a few words about Krishna. Krishna was Arjuna's cousin, and of course a cousin to all the Pandavas. Here's the genealogy. Kunti was the mother of Yudhisthira, Bhima, and Arjuna. Kunti's brother, Vasudev, was Krishna's father. Indeed, the very first verse of the Srimad Bhagavatam begins, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. In this invocation, the Sanskrit word Vasudev refers to Krishna. Vasudeva with a short a is Krishna's father. Vasudeva with a long a, also Vasudev, Vasudeva with, or Vasudeva, Vasudeva, with a long a is Krishna himself. Vasudev means Krishna, the son of Vasudev. Jesus, as we know, was born in a manger, in very humble circumstances, and Krishna was also born very humbly, but in a prison house instead. Very briefly, here's how this came to pass. Krishna's father and mother, Devaki and Vasudev, had just gotten yeah, Devaki and Vasudev had just gotten married and were driving home on Vasudev's chariot. At the reins was someone we've already had the displeasure of meeting, the great Asura Kamsa, Devaki's cousin brother, who had volunteered to drive the newlyweds home. As they rode along, Kamsa was really trying hard to be a good Asura an oxymoron if ever there was one. When suddenly, no more Mr. Nice Guy, Kamsa had heard an unembodied voice echoing from the heavens. In Sanskrit, Vak Asharira. Kamsa, you fool. You are driving the chariot of the woman whose eighth child will kill you. Remember that cosmic battle from a previous epic? The one I've already mentioned a few times? Back then it was Krishna in the form of Vishnu who had killed Kalanemi, now appearing as Kamsa. So when Kamsa heard it foretold that Devaki's eighth child would kill him, he thought, forget my sister, forget everything. His true colors emerged. In an instant, he grabbed Devaki's hair, jerked her back, unsheathed his sword, and was about to take her head. This is a classic example of a bona fide Asura. He didn't bother to think, well, the voice said this, but who knows for sure. He immediately decided to kill. He didn't hesitate. He didn't think twice. Vasudev, of course, had to think fast if he was going to save his new wife. They hadn't even made it back home, and he was already on the verge of becoming a widower. At this point, Srimad Bhagavatam contains various interesting passages in which Vasudev is attempting to reason with Kamsa, trying to convince him not to kill Devaki. Then he finally says, look, the voice said it would be the eighth son, right? So there's time, and here's what we can do. I'll give you my word as a brahmana, that whenever Devaki gives birth, I'll bring the newborn infant, infant to you to deal with as you like. Here, Vasudeva's object was to save his wife from imminent death, buy some time, and make a better plan in the future. And somehow his strategy worked. Kamsa changed his mind and let his sister go. After Talk some time, right there, yeah, right. <laughs> after some time, 
However, he received word from reliable sources that the Suras, the gods, knew of the Asuras' plan to take control of the earth and had already taken birth in the Yadu and other dynasties to stop them. Kamsa was warned to be careful, since this could threaten all his recent gains. He also knew that if the Suras had already descended to earth, then Vishnu would not be far, be far behind. Vishnu, who had destroyed him once in the celestial realm, Vishnu, whom he feared and hated more than any other being. His thoughts then turned to Devaki, Vasudev, and the warning in the sky, the eighth child. A god? Worse? It was all too much. Kamsa was upset to say the least, and neither logical arguments nor honorable pledges would do. He immediately had Vasudev and Devaki arrested and thrown behind bars, hoping to bring things under control. Then, not taking any chances, he killed each of Devaki's children on the very day they were born, waiting to take care of number eight as well. That eighth child, of course, was Krishna, who had something very different in mind for Mr. Kamsa, something more in line with what ha had happened to Kalanami. <laughs> A trident through, <laughs> <laughs> through his whole body, yeah. And his lion that he was riding. Well, no, the time. with Kamsa, he kills him with his bear. Yeah, hands. he yeah. just beats him down. <laughs> Tomorrow, we'll talk more about Krishna's birth. And how this relates to Pandu and the Pandavas. We'll also find out about Pandu's ultimate fate. Yeah. End of chapter. Mahabharata. Very exciting. Sick, oh, dude. <laughs> so much stuff going on. It's starting to get really... Uh... Like the whole... That's why we need to do a thing. Like, I was thinking of at some point, you know, the whole Vedic lore thing. Yeah. There's so much, like, backstory upon backstory and, like... The more you read of it, the more rich the context of the story becomes. Yeah. So then as you read it, you really become emotionally invested with some of these characters. And, uh, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really awesome. I like it. And on top of that, it's like very morally, exciting. very like intellectually philosophically it's interesting it's like on all the levels extremely yeah. stimulating. it entertains you it also makes you think god yeah. it's perfect like it literally it's is just it's great reading yeah yeah so on that one i think we'll just wrap this up here thank you guys for listening and yes. um you know thank you for the people that are listening and uh, let us know also if anybody that's listening would like to be on here with us one week. We're thinking about beginning oh, to do that. So if anybody awesome. watches this and is like, oh, I'd be, sit down and talk about something. If you have something specific you want to talk about, if there's something you'd want to read with us, whatever, uh, it'd be cool to have somebody on for an episode or two every now and then. So, yeah. And if you're worried about, <clears throat> you know, COVID and whatnot, we can always do... We can do it virtually. Some kind of virtual yeah. thing that would be really... We can set it up and really have the screen awesome. here. We yeah. would enjoy, you know... Yeah. Having, having, you know, anybody come in and... Yeah, it'd be nice to just, you know, have that conversation in person with people mm -hmm. on, on, from time to time as we're reading through, have some more conversational episodes in, in addition to the reading that we're doing. So, yep. um, so yeah, like, subscribe, follow, do all those wonderful things if you like us at all. Um, and <laughs> uh, yeah. share with a friend, send it to somebody. See you guys next time. All right.